everybody. Welcome to Doctor Podcast. We appreciate you being here and supporting people that support us. And uh, don't forget to check out After Dark and, uh, man, the streaming shows. Uh, you might want to check out the old one with Joseph Fryman. to some really interesting science presented there. Well, not science, just... <laughs> Our present moment is a very odd thing. And uh, some of the things you think you're sure of, um, turns out uh, that things are not what they appear to be. Do check that out. Uh, today, my guest is Viorica Marion. She's a psycholinguist, cognitive scientist, psychologist, known for research in bilingualism or multilingualism. The book is The Power of Language. Her website is her name, Viorica Marion, M-A-R-I-A-N.com or thepowerofanguage.com. And you can follow her on Twitter, again, at Viorica Marion 1. Viorica, welcome to the program. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. So uh, let me um, frame this conversation by, first of all, I've been I've been reaching out to cognitive science, uh, scientists of all types a lot these days because I'm trying to understand you know, you've just heard me talk about some distorted science about how everyone's thinking has gone berserko. Uh, like, it's almost like, I think Donald Trump broke a bunch of brains and then COVID broke the rest of them. And it was, and the cognitive distortions and distortions of thinking and, oh my God, I've never seen anything like this. So I, I've had this sort of trend lately where I've been reaching out to cognitive psychologists. That's one part of my story. The other part of my story is I got long COVID and uh, after a bad alpha Delta strain variant back in, you know, early 21. And I, I, it felt like I'd been hit in the head. It felt like a, you know, like a global kind of brain injury, but I had this strange feeling as I was sitting there miserable week uh, was that if I, that music or language could help pull me out of it, it was just a feeling like, I should be working on go back to piano or I should work on a language. And we were going to go to Greece that summer, like about three months later. And I thought, well, I need to, maybe I'll just learn the language. And I went into it whole hog. I, I didn't, you know, I should have recognized we live in a time when you can do just about everything on YouTube and online. You can get, you can get lessons on everything. And I went in full both feet and spent a lot of time and in two weeks, my fogginess had cleared. Uh, and, and so that's my story. And does that surprise you? Or is that consistent with your theoretical frame on the power of language? That's a really interesting story. And uh, first of all, I'm sorry you have long COVID. I don't have any more. It was, it was, it, it lifted with the, I, the, the weakness went another couple of weeks, but the fog, which was the most disturbing part, went away with studying Greek. Well, it sounds like you have one good thing that came out of it now you yeah. can speak some greek yes yes so, although, that's, although, that's... <laughs> although there's another uh that would be my third language and the thing about third language is you got to keep it up <laughs> you go it goes away really quickly wow what what are your other two languages french and english uh -huh, uh -huh. Uh, yeah i think your experience is is right on because you used another language and and or music maybe to sort of gently give your brain a workout in a way yeah. that's enjoyable yeah. and it didn't feel taxing and, and um, it helped you work, give you a little it, bit of a, was, a workout, was, mental workout. And it's a mental workout. It was taxing. I kind of do that to myself naturally because I'm sort of, you know, trained that way to, you know, to take on a, you know, a, any kind of cognitive discipline with, you know, both hands. Um, so it was taxing. It wasn't tiring, I would say. You know, it wasn't taxing in the way that certain kinds of cognitive processes can tire. Yeah, but isn't it amazing how you get benefits from learning another language? Well, that's from... what I wanted to get into. Yes. That's what I was yeah. where I hoping you go. So so I, I'm guessing there's a neurobiology attached to all that. Tell me more about it. Yeah, so both of these are forms of enrichment. So in you, you get enriched auditory input, enriched auditory experience, but it's not just that. With learning a new language, um, you form connections between words, between representations of meaning. Um, you have to control your languages. So as I'm, we're speaking now in English, we have to make sure we don't suddenly, you don't switch into Greek or uh, French and I don't focus. switch into Romanian it, or, yeah. yeah. So we have to facilitate the languages we speak and inhibit the other languages, yeah, which gives us this constant executive function workout then yeah. that no other um, real experience 
gives you on the fly all the time. So you know what? It felt a little bit like what problem solving does. Problem solving does require more focus and more taxing, but it felt like it had that kind of quality to it. I got to say, I wouldn't have said it at the time, but now looking back, I, I, I think it does. Yeah, and it's true. And there is actually quite a bit of research now that sh that suggests that people who speak two or more languages have some uh, see some benefits against cognitive decline, some yes, protective benefits against cognitive decline that you see with aging, and also um, delaying onset of dementia, yeah, Alzheimer's, yeah. and other kinds of dementia. Yeah. Um, are they using it for head injury? Since this thing to COVID affected me so much, like a head injury, are they using it for head injury patients? Um, I think we're just now starting to do research on that. Um, it's a very, it's a relatively new field. So most of the time, most of the research in cognitive science focused on monolinguals, people who just spoke one language and people who spoke two or more languages were seen as an aberration and as a noise. Mm -hmm. So um, we're just now realizing, hey, wait, the majority of the world population speaks two or more languages. So um you know, really studying the mind in speakers of only one language gives us not only an incomplete, but also an inaccurate understanding of the human mind and human potential and what the brain can do and what the mind can do. Um, and, you know, one thing, one, one of the things about speaking another language is that unlike any kind of other cognitive exercise, you don't need to take time out of your day to benefit from it once you've learned the other language. Also, so, also, I still, to this day, when I work on language, because I've made a habit of it ever since that experience, um, running or working out, I always work on some language. And you can see so you can do other things and yes, study language. Yes. I can't, I can't really solve math equations and, and work out. I can't really do that. Well, but you know, just by virtue of using language, you speak a language, you listen, you listen to music, whatever you do, you have to focus on the language you're using and inhibit the other language. So you're constantly working out your brain, whereas yeah. any kind of other workout if you do you know wordle or crossword mm. puzzles or uh you know anything else you have to actually take time out of your life to do that whereas here you just live your life and by virtue of knowing two or more languages your brain is is constantly getting a a, a workout what led to you wanting to write the book I've been I've been studying language and the psychology of language for almost 30 years now. So it was never a question of writing the book. It was a question of when um, really wanting to bring this data and this information to a wider audience as opposed to just my classroom or just the lab or scientific papers. Um, but I had to wait until my kids were grown and out of the house and until you know, that until I felt like, okay, now is the time. Uh, and the, sort of the zeitgeist it. is right to speak to the world about the benefits of, of language learning. And how is the receptivity? How is it being received? Mixed, I think, um, mostly very positively, but there is still some resistance. Um, uh, you know, sometimes people think that by talking about bilingualism and multilingualism, we are talking about another language as opposed to English and not about multiple languages including English mm. so um sometimes those things can trigger this reaction well of course everyone should speak English in in this country but the the argument is not against replace to work not, it's not for replacing English but for people to actually learn multiple languages as a form of enrichment and cognitive enrichment yeah yeah we don't we don't think of it as such per se, I think it's not explicitly thought of that way. And I, my experience was so vivid with it. I, that's why I think why I've stayed with it. Uh, and I certainly didn't think of it that way in high school. You know what I mean? Where a lot, a lot of the language, maybe that's, do you have any thoughts about that? Like how languages are taught, and especially in this country, we are so provincial when it comes to language. I mean, English is, you know, that's it. And yeah, it yeah. Odd. you know, either, either you grew up in a bilingual bicultural family or you you know if you're lucky you maybe got it in high school or college or something but even then the way it's taught is so i don't know it seems like we can do better um yeah well english is a uh, is one of the major languages in the world so sometimes people think well i don't need another language because so many people in the world speak english and that's true a lot of people speak english but the reason for learning another language is really for your own cognitive benefit for your own enrichment um think about it as you think of learning math or learning music 
Um, you're right that socially it's not really as well supported as it could be. For example, as it is in, in Europe or in yeah. any other parts of the world where it's the norm yeah. for people to grow it, it up with. It starts when they're languages. eight and seven years, they start right away. It starts yes. with three yeah. languages right away, which oh God, we only wish we could do that or we had done that. And it just <laughs> naturally, we'd naturally pick it up. So my, you know, like my parents, my grandparents, myself, everyone in my family speaks multiple languages, but now my kids are educated in an American system. So they're pretty much monolingual. They speak a little bit of other languages, but with a foreign accent. Um, so I definitely get how challenging it is to support bilingualism when it's not supported more widely. Yeah, I, I just think we are so uh, insulated from that. Now, there's another part of my experience I wanted to share or bring to you, which is as I've so so after I went to Greece and it was you I first thing I learned was that if you really apply yourself the early part of language learning is a very steep slope you can learn a lot very quickly right I started reading about that a little bit and then that sort of intermediate zone is a plateau of bit it's a, the slope goes way down right am I much well, growth is not linear you think that you're not learning but you are learning, you're just learning different things, you're forming different connections. Early on, you're learning these words, and you see, you know, quick growth in the number of words you've learned. Yeah. And then the learning is a little bit more hidden, it's a, a, sort of a hidden network. But after you sort of go through that plateau, you can really see things come together in your grammar and yeah. in the way you use language. Yeah. And you know, earlier, one thing I, um, when you were talking about differences between the United States and other countries, there is actually data that shows that there is a direct relationship between the number of languages spoken in the country and the incidence of Alzheimer's. So oh, that's interesting. Isn't that's it interesting? interesting. With yeah. each additional language in a country, um, the incidence of Alzheimer's goes down. So interesting. at the population level. Mm -hmm. it, you know, the, the group that is my travels, I always run across that seem to always speak three to five languages is the Dutch. And so I'm wondering, is that A, is that an unusual outlier? And B, do they have less, less Alzheimer's there? It is It is not an unusual outlier. And my husband happens to be Dutch. Yeah. So uh, his mother, you know, she's in her mid-80s and she speaks five languages fluently. Yeah. It's very, you know, everyone from everyone. elementary school just kind of grows up with three languages. Yep. It's the norm in most European countries. In okay. some countries, it's like 99% of people are bilingual or trilingual. And if you make it part of your culture, it just, you pick it up like you pick up literacy, you know, in other countries. Oh, so you then just kind of automatically learn it and then you reap the benefits, lifelong benefits from it. So the next layer for me was, so when I finished with Greece, I, I, I went, you know what? I've always been I've been frustrated with the fact that I could never really converse in French. I just couldn't understand why I couldn't because I know the language. I know how to read and write it very well. Never was taught really how to speak it properly or how to comfortably, I guess would be a better word. I could always do it properly. The, the, but of course, the problem in France is very people, few people speak proper French. They speak familiar French and, and slang French and all this other stuff. Uh, and and so when I dug into it, it it got it got. I thought, oh, well, I understand why I didn't understand this. No, no one ever taught me this stuff, uh, and I didn't really get it in my ear. And I certainly wasn't producing it as as a verbal experience. My questions are two two things. Uh, a is that a whole other kind of wiring? Is that another mechanism in the brain, or is it all kind of a continuous sort of? Mm, similar kind of neurobiological network, number one. And number two, and this is a bigger topic, um, I've been forced, because I've really been forcing myself to, to get the French right, to learn to think the way they think. And that is different. It is not franglais. It is not a direct translation at all. It's a literally a different way of thinking. And that has been an interesting and challenging part of this. So give me both a little bit on both those. These are both really great topics to talk about. And the answer to your first question is it's both. Okay. Uh, it is a continuum, but also each of these languages is a little bit distinct and your experiences are distinct if you speak mm. it versus if you just read it and write it. Okay. But both of them um, 
shape your brain. Both of them change the way your neural networks work. Yeah. The second one is, is really quite interesting. Uh, the fact that with each additional language, we sort of partition the world a little bit differently and see the world and think a little bit differently. So you mentioned that you were learning Greek. And a famous example for Greek learners is that in Greek, there are two words for blue. There is light blue and dark blue. And if you have English speakers remember or even sort colors or remember things of different colors, um, English speakers versus Greek speakers, um, you see differences in performance on this color spectrum on oh, a continuum, depending on whether it's light blue yeah. or dark blue. So like that. Yeah. you sort of, just sort of changes how you, you see the world a little bit. Yes. And um, you, you yourself often use this hammer example, right? That it's not a collection of at atoms. You have the steel and the wood. You know what I'm talking about? I've heard no. you using in your shows before. Steel. The, the, the hammer, you always talk about how a hammer is not, you know what I'm, You've, I talk about how I talk about people that become expert become hammers and the whole world becomes the nail they're looking for. There's hammering on a nail all the time. I use that for my language analogy, but no, you've used it in some of your philosophical podcasts talking about how when you we refer when we talk about a Maybe it was an X. I think it was a hammer. You don't talk about the steel oh. handle. Oh, yeah. No, this was. Yes. I don't know where you heard me talk about that. That's fantastic. No, that's uh, that's Heidegger. Heidegger has a a a extraordinary and a impenetrable speaking of difficult language way of thinking about experience. So yes. so phenomenology is about experience. Yes. And he was saying, you know, the hammer or those like the axe, it's it could be some wood with this weird metal attached to it that's hanging on the wall, or it can be a a tool ready to hand that you can pull off and it turns, it literally becomes something different experientially at that moment. He, he goes from those simple kinds of, he starts talking about what is near and far are my glasses, which I don't notice all the time. Are they near or are they far from experience? Right. They're sort of far because I, they never come to conscious and I have to kind of zero in. And so he goes, have you ever tried to re read Being in Time by Heidegger? Have you ever tried? I don't recommend it. <laughs> it's just impenetrable. But he goes all the way into concepts of time and everything, everything. So and how things appear to us. And oh, my God, he ends up sort of in a almost a uh, Eastern philosophical sort of it sort of starts to sound like that to me where he goes, which is kind of interesting because things get more yeah. holistic. And he I, there's a famous famous Heideggerian philosopher that was at Berkeley for many years, his name I'm blanking on right now, but I, he used to have these great lectures out back when we had YouTube, iTubes U, you know, iTunes U. And he, when I heard him talking about this time and horizon and ecstasy and stuff, he goes, it's something that's something that means something. And it's explaining about a something. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's perfect Heidegger. It's something and it's something and it's just something. It, it's, it defies deep uh, definition. Which, I, I love this yeah. so much for so many reasons, because reasons, because you're talking about, you know, a hammer and, and so why don't we not refer to it as a collection of atoms and different we yeah, use yeah. language to give yeah. it a label and the second we say hammer we immediately know what we're talking about and yeah. we represent in our mind a certain way but and, and the hammer itself it could be a you know, we're talking about the claw and it could be a yes. weapon or it could be yes old it could be it could be in my hand it could be in somebody else's hand each of those is a different experience of hammer well but with language also the the label we use to like you just said, a weapon or a yeah. tool, it immediately yeah. sort of shapes and anchors us in how we think about the hammer. And it's not just the hammer, it's everything else in the universe and the reality around us. Say that so, again. Say, say that, give me that one again, because because I was just, as you were saying, and I was thinking maybe Heidegger was only really talking about language when you get right down to it. But go ahead. Say see, that again. Because like, you know, because I study language to me, yeah, like you said, once you you know, if you Your have a hammer, hammer, everything else looks like a nail. Yes. So That's to another, me, everything else, everything looks like language. Because when I think about the universe and reality, what is yeah. reality? The perception that you have, or I have, or everyone, anyone else has, is different. And we could think about this 
kaleidoscopic flux of impressions, but we don't. We use labels to label, okay, here's our microphone, uh, here's the computer, there's the sky, there's the tree, there's the rainbow. So we use language and we use labels to help us partition reality. And, yes. and um, language sort of functions as those glasses that you just mentioned, as yes. the lens through which yes. we see the world. And with each new language, you partition the world a little bit differently. Yes. Just like with Greek, you had different words for, for light and dark blue. Yes, yes. And it's not just that. So think about, since we are on the color topic, think about the rainbow. Yeah. In the United States, you usually think that the rainbow has this set number of colors and you learn them in childhood and you learn the colors and that's what the rainbow is. But in reality, the rainbow is an infinite number of colors. Each color seamlessly transitioning into the other just with one change of a pixel. So you could have so many more colors. It's the labels that we put them on color that then shape how we see the rainbow. Whereas right. if you now, next time you see the rainbow, you look at it, you realize, oh, it's not a discrete color representation. Yes. So other languages that have other words for color represent the rainbow differently. And it's not just rainbow. It's time. It's um, it's just about every concept in the world. The labels we use anchor how we think about those terms. Anchor it or this is going to be a really tough question. Anchor it or create it in the well, sense. That's a huge philosophical question. Yeah, because let, yeah. let me frame that a little bit, which is, you know, we have the world as we experience it, back to phenomenology, which is not the world in itself. The world in itself is energy and atoms and time doesn't even exist, but we have an arrow of time in our brain. And, and, and we, and we're talking about these things. I'm using words to, to send that information across to you, but does it, I, I, I could see where it would bias my concept of reality, but I feel like brains already do that because they, they must've evolved to do that, but language makes it more, maybe something like that. So the yeah, it's a huge philosophical question. What comes first, thought or language? And our, you know, we we sort of want to say thought. Of course, thought comes first. But how do we know that? Because most of the time we use language to measure to measure thought, and um, even if we go to sort of babies, they already have some experience with language. Or if we go to um, really language and thought are so tightly connected yes, yes. it's very well, well, hard to separate the two well let's but dig then, into the other layer which is sort of all right i'm going to use a word which feeling feelings i mean kid, children definitely have feelings right and they are sort of identified and in fact there's a good a whole bunch of data that shows that before kids acquire language the way they appreciate feeling is seeing it on mom's face mom automatically the small muscles in our eye around our mouth give a signal of an appreciation of the child's feeling state not saying i'm catching your feeling but i know your feeling and it, and that's a language right i mean it's if go ahead keep going yes yes it is and also labeling emotions has a very powerful effect. This is what people do in therapy. This is what children yeah. do. Oh, you absolutely. Often, you want to use labels to help you process emotions. Um, and that has implications for lots of things in psychological health, in psychotherapy, yeah. in relationships. So I go into my book um, in, in having relationships with people who speak multiple languages, personal relationships. If you ever you know, dated or, uh, or worked with someone or in, in the family speak more than one language, um, you change how you interact with people often depending on the languages you speak. There's an entire uh, Dr. Drew after dark episode there nah, to talk about funny. love across languages. Yes, yes. Oh my God. That's so interesting. And I'm, I'm just flashing on how children tend to use, you know, baby fake languages or stuff as a way of creating a little intimacy with another person that, you know, that, that's, that's a, a way to do that. Yeah, and there is, for people who speak multiple languages, there is um, a lot of evidence suggesting that they feel differently in the native language versus the second language. The native language is often more emotional, uh, and the second language is often more more um, 
uh, rational and you see this impacting. So when someone says, I love you, it lands differently depending on whether so it's a native language that or is second so, language. I, I was just watching an interview. I can't remember the French actress's name, but she has a pretty heavy French action when she speaks English, but she speaks perfect English and she's an actress. But when I saw her speaking French, I'm like, oh, there's much, much broader range of expression here than when she's speaking English. It's and yet Coquillard, is that her name? Coquille or Coquillard or something? Um, uh, anyway, but that is an interesting thing. And I certainly know, well, I mean, when it's not your native tongue, you're you're worried about being authentic and you sort of you're thinking about things and that uh, takes you out of the spontaneity of the normal flow of feelings, I suppose. Yeah, there is there is research on love and on curse words. They have a stronger effect in the native language. But you even can see those differences in decision making that have nothing to do with emotions like financial allocations, uh, savings, ethics, uh, cheating. That changes across native language versus second language. Um, a famous example, you you probably have heard of the trolley dilemma, this ethics dilemma that, mm -hmm. so in a, in, in a version of it, if you pose the question in the native language versus the second language, people answer differently. So for listeners who don't That's know crazy. what the dilemma is. That is crazy. Yeah, just, I'll, I'll back up a little bit. So if you see a, a trolley coming down and there are uh, five workmen, say, working on the on the tracks, um, and the trolley is about to run over this five workmen and kill them. And you are standing on a footbridge next to a person with a large backpack, a large person. And if you push this person off the bridge, the person will die, but it'll stop the, the trolley and save the lives of five people. So then the question becomes, is it permissible to sacrifice the life of one person to save the lives of five? I don't know. What, what did you say to that? Well, it's so interesting. I'm listening to your use of even English, and it's a little different than I would describe the trolley experiment. I was thinking to myself, oh, we're much more pragmatically harsh about it, more mechanistic. Because we we open the trolley experiment with you pull a lever and you save the five people, but it runs over some one guy. So are you, are you doing something? And about 90% of people will do that. But the the issue of the guy on the bridge, we don't use words like permissible. We just go, would you do it? Yeah. Well, do there it? are different versions of it. Of but, course. But, but it's so interesting that permissible, it changed the experience for me when you said that. I thought, oh, is it permissible? Well, that's actually a bigger thought than would I do it? Because is it permissible? Sure. But I don't think I could do it. And that's that's interesting. See, it's interesting you said that because you were saying, it sounds like you're saying, yeah, it's permissible, but I wouldn't do it. If someone else wants to do it, but if it's the lever, more people are going to say yes. yes that they have right. to really push a person off that's the right. bridge. I just but think I just think I, the word pragmatic comes into my head. We have a more pragmatic take on the trolley experiment, and yeah. and, and my being permissible versus not doing is a pragmatic thing, which is well, I could understand why somebody could do it and would do it. I. I, I'm one of those people, the proximity and looking the guy in the eye, no way, no way I could do yeah, it. So most people, when they have to make this decision in their first language, they are more likely to, they are more guided by sort of deontological variables. Is it right or wrong mm. uh, to kill someone? And mm. then when they're doing in their second language, they're more likely to be guided by utilitarian values. What's what benefits the greater good? So more of a yeah, that's logical the more abstract. versus more that's of an emotional. The, yeah, that's a more abstract thing. kind of thing. That's mm -hmm. interesting. My, oh my and God. And it's not just that. You know, people, the likelihood of cheating, the likelihood of saving for it, just lots of behaviors on which people differ depending on which language they're using at the time. So interesting we're having this conversation yeah. today because I'm literally leaving for France in the morning and and I, uh, I'll i be very <laughs> interested to see how how that part i would not pay attention to that part normally i'd just be focused on getting the language right but now i'm going to try to get the whole experience you know how i'm feeling about myself and other people and how i express myself and oh my god i'm, I'm very excited now but uh oh good well with now. french i can give you some more ideas for fun things to think about yes um, please so french is a romance language which means that most inanimate objects have grammatical gender um yeah, so in english 
you know, glasses or a yeah. desk or cup, yeah. they're all referred to as it. Yeah. Whereas in French, they are referred to with either masculine pronoun or mm -hmm. feminine pronoun. Yeah. And it turns out that people who speak languages um, that have grammatical gender um, describe those objects in ways that are consistent with the grammatical gender of yep. that object. I can see that. And it sort of shapes how you think about the world. And you can yep. take the exact same item, let's say a key. And if it's feminine in one language or masculine in the other language, people describe it as either tiny, golden, intricate, lovely, or they describe it as metal, serrated, useful. Mm -hmm. So, you know, little grammatical aspects of language change how we represent the world. Yes, I, I, I could see that, especially, I think, places too. Places have a when they're described with feminine pronouns and things, it gets a little different. But, you know, one thing I learned about, which I never occurred to me, I was, again, I've been lot, just watching stuff, just listening to a lot of French. I watch interviews and this and that and the other thing. And this one person was talking about, um, I forget what the topic was, but they were getting into the the way the the masculine and feminine and the pronouns that were, there were the articles that are put before it. Are pronouns? Are, Art articles. articles. Yeah, the articles. <laughs> And um, and they said, you know, when we are taught these languages, the the article is we learn it as part of the noun. It's it's just part of the noun. It's not the bird. It's l'oiseau. It's just that's it. And it's like that. That was an interesting thing to me because in English we definitely separate those things. Today, I want to tell you about Intera skincare products. They have a great range of transformative products. Have you feeling confident and beautiful in no time? They have a line of products that includes Folletin Hair Regrowth Serum, say goodbye to hair loss, and the ultimate solution for rejuvenating your skin, Platinum Restore Serum. Intera skincare does not stop there. They've also introduced the Platinum Silk Hair and Body Oil, transformative elixir, as well as targeted results without adding moisturizer with the Sapphire Lux Firming Serum. The concentrated formula tightens and firms the skin. And finally, a remarkable Sapphire Lux Cream, not just another moisturizer, it's a healing elixir. So why wait? Experience the magic of Intera skincare today and say hello to a more radiant you. Visit their website at enteraskincare.com to explore their full range of products and start that journey to healthier skin and hair. Don't miss out on this incredible opportunity to transform your beauty routine. Use promo code DREW for 10% off at checkout. That's code D-R-E-W for 10% off at Entera Skincare, E-N-T-E-R-A, EnteraSkincare.com. Entera Skincare, where beauty meets science. Get ready to shine. Hey, this is Eric Griffin. And I'm Brendan Chaub. And I'm Chris D'Elia. And we are... Golden Hour. All right, yeah, dude, we are. So check it out, you know? Check it out and stuff. Funniest right? podcast in the land. Make sure you check us out. It is a grand old time. It is. It's a good time. And you can uh, subscribe to the channel and also our uh, Patreon, patreon.com slash the Golden Hour Podcast. Golden Hour Podcast. Or, or even listen for free. We're here for you. Yep. Stay uh, everywhere. It's YouTube. It's all sorts of different places, dude. If you aren't seeing it, it's not because it's not where you listen, dude. <laughs> that's that's just one of many examples that really show how powerful language is and how we think about the world and people some people have paid a great deal of money to learn how to use and manipulate language and advertisement and politics and relationships to get us to the result they want well, that's another major topic with persuasion and and that kind of thing. It, or do you is it the book includes stuff about that? Yeah. So the first part of the book talks about bilinguals, multilinguals at the individual level, how yeah. it changes our feelings, our thoughts, our relationships, and then the second part uh, takes it to a broader society level, like. Um, with politics, using it, uh, mani using manipulation and language, and also uh, other types of languages, other kind of symbolic systems like artificial intelligence oh, wow. uh, languages. Math is a language as well. Yes. Music, you started with music, it's like full circle. All of these are symbolic systems that use a symbol to in, you know, encode, transmit, and decode information at the other end to transmit it across time and space. Yes. So 
there, this is sort of a continuum of different kinds of symbolic systems. And sometimes it helps with monolinguals who don't speak another language to really think about math and how learning math changed how they think and how they represent number and, and provides this heuristics, this shortcuts to think about, you know, a billion or a million in the same way learning another language really can reframe and change how we think. What, your classes right now, what, what kind of students are you te teaching? What do they come for? So I'm in the communication sciences and disorders department, which means that we train speech language pathologists mm. um, in a, to a large extent, because often um, people who speak another language are misdiagnosed. They are either underdiagnosed or overdiagnosed as having a language disorder. Um, so being, it's really uh, helpful to be able to differentiate difference from disorder. Just because someone speaks with an accent or makes grammatical errors that are consistent with their native language doesn't mean that they have a disorder. Yes. So that's sort of the practical applied implication to, to studying the relationship between language and the mind and language and the brain. You know, one of my um, kids has uh, shown some interest in speech, but uh, doing speech pathology training recently. I may have him call you if you'll permit me at some point. Oh, yes. They, they, <laughs> they, 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 uh, is your child in high school or college? No, no. Or? He's uh, got a... <laughs> He's trying to find the, what his passion. He got a math degree, then he got a psychology degree, and then sort of getting interested in this. But is oh, it interesting sure. that that's all stuff? You know, math and psychology. Math is the, again the the symbol part and the the communication part. It's Symbolic systems, yeah. yes. So psycholinguistics is one of it. Speech language pathology is a, is a really vast field. So my daughter decided to go into speech language pathology, but she went into dysphagia, which is the study of swallowing, a completely different uh, end of the spectrum. I studied the mind and she started the biology of swallowing. Oh, so interesting. You, yeah. If your child is interested in speech language pathology, there's an entire continuum from swallowing and breathing to mind and language and lots of other things in between uh, aphasia, dementia. It's anything that has to do with human communication. Yes. It, it, and I was always sort of fascinated by aphasias and, and stroke when I was in training because mm -hmm. they're, they're so, I, I hate to say it, but they're odd. They're, they get your attention. They're what's going on here. How, what's happening to this poor person? And, um, they're... And multilingual aphasia even more so because there yeah. are these cases of people who speak multiple languages and then they may have a stroke. And let's say you're a trilingual, you lose two languages, but keep one and then eventually you regain one or you might regain them uh, in in interesting, unusual patterns. Uh, we're still trying to, to really understand um, how the brain processes language. People used to think, I'm sure you know that, uh, because when you were in medical school, probably was covered as, you know, here's the Broca's area, here's the Vernicke's yeah. area. The, the, and then there's the connecting, whatever they called that. Yeah, it was very transitional. I forget what they call it, but they, it was very, um, I learned lots of different aphasia. There was a book, I forget what the book was, but there was a book on aphasia. I got fascinated with it and started mm -hmm reading about aphasias, but very limited uh, correlation with the neurobiology, like almost. Right, because now we know that it's a network. And yeah. it's, so I'm often, the most likely question, one of the most likely questions I would get asked if I'm fly on the plane and I'm sitting next to someone, they often ask, is it, are the two languages representing the same or different you know, points in the brain, places in the brain? And it's such a misguided question because yeah. it's not like one language is here and one language is there. It's really a network that's involved in uh, lexical and phonological and semantic and so many other things that's largely overlapping. Uh, but yeah, the brain is a, for sure, a fascinating uh, organ that we're still, super organism, might say that we're still learning and have a lot more to learn about. Oh my God. It's, it's, we just barely scratching the surface, but yes, it's yes. interesting to me that when I think about some of the advances in uh, neurobiology over the last 30 years, um, a lot of it is in sort of the emotional and emotional regulation system. And, and then also in the cog cognitive attentional stuff. Right. Uh, but not so much with language that I've seen, or at least been reading about me. I'm just missing that literature. Yeah. So we are just now, uh, I have a, a new postdoc coming in who's a clinical psychologist and is interested precisely in using language first versus second language to help with emotional regulation mm -hmm. uh, because uh, sometimes using a second language helps the person distance from the trauma mm -hmm. and um, and they are much more likely to be able to work through it and talk through it and process it and sometimes yeah. using the first language is what really helps so 
emotions are so tied to language. There is even this uh, idea of language-dependent memory. We remember things differently depending on the language we use. Yeah. And if we reinstate the same language as was used at the time the event happened, it can benefit therapy more. So you can definitely use language um, to help regulate emotions. There's a guy named Stephen Porges that um, has this vagal, polyvagal theory, he calls it. But part of this is what he calls a socio-emotional exchange system, which is that some of the the efferents from the um, uh, vagus nerve end up in the uh, muscles to the ear and in, in the vocal cords. And so you can adjust your vocal prosody and your attunement to the vocal prosody. I mean, think how mothers talk to babies and things. And that's all very tied up in what's coming out of the body through the vagus. Mm -hmm. Since you mentioned uh, the ear, um, I have a, an interesting experiment to to tell you about that uh, we ran. So I don't know if you are, fam if you are familiar with autoacoustic emissions. No, tell me. Uh, yeah, so most people know that the ear processes sound that you know you process incoming sound but it turns out that the ears also produce sound so if you place a very sensitive microphone um inside the ear the mammalian ear also produces what are known as uh, spontaneous autoacoustic emissions. And we don't really know what role they serve whether it's like a vestigial thing like the vestigial tail or yeah their function is not known. And for the longest time, uh, we used to think that there is no, it's like we we don't know what it does. And we still don't know, but we know that um, because of including bilinguals and multilinguals, multilinguals in an experiment on autoacoustic emissions, we found that people who speak multiple languages modulate autoacoustic emissions in this top-down manner, which suggests that there might be more to these autoacoustic emissions that we now know. And also, it really drives home the point of including linguistically diverse populations in research, of not just studying monolinguals to yeah. get a fuller picture of the mind and the brain. I wonder, I, I'm just, I think about the eye always as the paradigm for neurobiological insights and you know your eyes are moving constantly for reasons we don't know and i've always thought it was to sort of get rid of or sort of somehow blot out things we don't need to see like you know arteries over our retina and things like that i'm wondering if the ear does something to sort of eliminate you know background noise we don't need or something or some or maybe our the veins going the arteries you know pulsing right behind the eardrum maybe we don't need to hear that and it sort of helps move it move it move it out of consciousness i'm so glad you brought up the eye because i was almost forgetting to tell you about this so eye movements are my primary tool of measuring the mind so i record people's eye movements as they perform different tasks mm. and then well i also use eeg and fmri but in i started out with eye tracking and using eye movements as an index of cognitive processing. So what we find is that as people hear words, they don't turn off the other language. Um, all of their languages are activated in parallel. So if you hear a word, let's say candy, and there is a candle on the display, you're going to make eye movements to the candle as well. Now, if you speak another language, let's say Spanish, you are also going to make eye movements to a petlock padlock because the Spanish word for padlock is candado. So as you hear one word, all words and all languages that share form or meaning are coactivated. And we know that in part because people make eye movements to this overlapping. Do they, are they just tiny movements or are they, are they actually going to that object? You just don't know it. The saccadic quick movements that they're not aware of, which yeah, is yeah. why it's so interesting because these are not conscious eye movements. They happen on the fly. We only people are not aware they're making them. We only know that they happen because we recorded their eye movements. Wow. And then when we analyze da the data, we can see that um, words that share form across languages are fixated more, which tells us that people never turn off the other language. They keep both languages running. And interestingly, they later remember things differently. So if you speak Spanish, you're more likely to remember that you saw padlock um, than if you speak English because the two words share association. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have this sort of spreading activation uh, uh, with each word, this network of other words that share formal meaning that are co-activated in this really uh, parallel activation 
process, a highly interactive uh, mind. And the more languages you speak, the more sp more interactivity you see, which later um, can change things like creativity. Uh, just it has a lot of consequences. The fact yeah. that um, you know words in other languages. We need to get more serious about teaching languages in this country. I'm convinced of that. I mean, I, or at least if you are a bilingual parent, real, really kind of, I know it's hard when you're raising kids, but maybe try to emphasize. All I agree. Things. And as, as we're now on this precipice of this AI revolution, yeah, people who speak multiple languages I and mean, computer languages are also languages. They're yeah. also forms of symbolic systems. So, um, the, a lot of people in the Silicon Valley speak more than one language, not just computer languages, but natural languages. Yes. It really changes how you think and how you think about symbols and symbolic systems. So well, when you when you think about things like chat GPT, people will just go, oh, it's just a language system. It's just anticipating words. But I'm guessing, uh, you know, I'm guessing that's a big piece of our cognitive apparatus and how it works. Yeah. And to say that it's just yeah. language is such an understatement. Well, they don't I would say just say language. They say just, even just, do language. Language is such a major thing. No, no, right. I agree with you. But they'll say it's just anticipating. It's it's just increasing the... I, I've heard it explained as it's just a probabilistic equation of the next word. Do, does that is that how we choose our words? or, or ours Well, are that's, a, that's a good question. I mean, not just words. Is that how we learn? Yeah. Is this how our mind works? That Do we works do we compute probabilities on the fly there is research with babies that shows that when you give them you know streams of sounds their brain detects probabilities of sounds co-occurring together and that's how humans learn language we are very good at extracting patterns from our visual and auditory environment what what is likely to go together statistically probabilistically yeah i i'm we we don't yet know how different this is what we do with our mind from what AI does. Of course, AI doesn't have, we would say yeah. now, intention yet. It doesn't have emotion yet. But um, it's not, It's there's not like a clear distinction between um, these kind of processing. And it's hard to know at the speed at which it's evolving. It's hard to say that um, what it does and the way it learns language is different uh, from the way organic matter Yes. language. I have one more topic I want to get into, but before I do, I want to know if there's other things you, did we cover your discipline? Is there other, something else you'd like people to know? I can talk about language yeah. forever, as I'm sure you can talk about. Just, you know, I, there's I so stuff. much to talk about. And I think whatever's of interest to you, I'm so happy to talk about any of well, that. I, I want to finish up talking about uh, you, you, we, we, skated past it which was sort of manipulation and advertising and neurolinguist process neurolinguistic processing some people call it um but what's the state of the art with that is that is that something highly developed these days and people understand it and so there's, i, I there's there's guys like they're guy i mean i don't think of it as language people as guys like uh oh, what's the guy's name i want to say like chaloni or i forget his name i'll think of it in a minute that is sort of this expert in persuasion but he's not really a language guy. Yeah, I, so with language, it's, it's there are so many books written about this. Oh, I, I will start with a small example and then take it from there. When okay. my kids were very young, and if any of your listeners have young kids, toddlers, let's say around two, they can do this experiment with their own kids. And it works beautifully. And people who overhear you will be flabbergasted. So <laughs> I would ask my kids all kinds of questions like, you know, a two-year-old, and I'd say, how much is nine divided by three? And they'd say three. And I'd say, how much is four minus two? And they'd say two. And I'd say, how much is 124 multiplied by zero? And they'd say zero. And I'd say, you know, who was the first president, Adams or Washington? And they'd say Washington. So any topic, you could ask them a question and they knew the answer. And yeah. people were always shocked and amazed and thought, you know, is this child a genius? <laughs> well, the reason it worked is because I'd structure those questions so that the answer I wanted was always last. 
Oh, right? interesting. Nine divided by three or 280 uh. multiplied by zero. Because kids go through this stage where uh, at one point in language development, they always repeat the last word of a sentence. Oh, wow. Interesting. And it can work so beautifully. People can make TikToks and just show how, how old, how old are they? How it old? varies by individuals, but around two, give or take a few months. Well, and mimicry, mimicry, echolalia, this stuff. Humans are highly, highly set up for that. So kids are not the only ones who fall for this. Yeah, yeah. Tricks. Adults do that too, and politicians do that too. So you often, you know, see people repeating the first syllable of a word, mm -hmm. uh, which gives it more weight, like, you know, uh, save social security or um, it just lots of examples, like, or relabeling things. So changing the estate tax into the death tax. People are going to vote differently. Um against the death tax which brings to mind the death of the loved ones versus an estate tax which brings to mind uh taxing of the, the wealthy so just changing the label of something immediately changes how people think about it and how they're going to vote and there are lots of things like this in in, in language and consumer language that can be used um to influence our outcomes, our decision-making. There is just now starting to um, be some research that suggests that people who speak more than two language, more than one language are less susceptible to linguistic manipulation mm. uh, because they are just so, they're more clued in to subtle, uh, small variations between languages. Um, so if you hear some, this is a study from Norway, if you hear a sentence like, um, more men have been to London than I have. Uh, or more people have graduated from college than I have, than he has. That's not grammatically correct, of course, and it doesn't make any sense as a statement. So if you speak more than one language, you're more likely to to notice that. I see. Interesting. In that judgment. But um, the more you are aware of the power of language in shaping how we think, the less susceptible you will hopefully be to all this linguistic manipulations that we are surrounded by all the time. All the time. I remember the yes. guy's name now, it's Cialdini. Cialdini is his name. He writes a book. He wrote a new book called Presuasion, which is that mm -hmm. there is a way to set people up with language so they're more likely to go in a certain direction. Psychology of language is a fascinating uh, topic. It takes language, it takes the mind, it brings them together and... It's really quite interesting. Well, we are out of time. It really has been a privilege to talk to you. Thank you so much. I, your book sits on literally on my nightstand. I've got like a, I, I've got a to do books, <laughs> books I want to get into, and yours is definitely on the on the uh, roster. Well, one um, one of the good things about the book is you don't have to read it from the beginning to end. It's not a novel. You can look at it chapter title that's of interest to you if you're interested in another language another soul if you're interested in uh poet whatever you're interested in you open the chapter well, and you kind of peruse it as we discussed i'm i'm going to uh, another country tomorrow i'm going to bring the book and uh use it for the questions that i have along the way that's thank great you. i hope you enjoy it thank, thank you. you so much eureka marion.com the power of language.com um thank you so much for being here Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed talking to you. Pleasure. Everyone else, we will see you next time. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. Only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. Mm -hmm.